0: Now turn your Bible to the book of Esther in the Old Testament, as so we cover chapter 8 tonight. As we're nearing the end of this series on the book of Esther with uh, Chris Walker uh, finishing up next week, Lord willing, I've been reminded how this was one of the most contested books of the Old Testament that the scholars of old determined whether or not this was Scripture. Was this indeed the inspired word of of God, and we're reminded that there there's no explicit reference to God in the entire book. Credit is not given to God. There's no direction to praise God, though His His uh, hand of providence is very evident in the deliverance of the Jewish people in this point in history. And uh, one of the things we try to emphasize as we're going through this series is how God's faithfulness is so clear and how his, his invisible hand is guiding the deeds and actions of a pagan king, and even using the members of the chosen race, who in many ways are less than exemplary, as we find Esther and Mordecai being accommodators and assimilating into uh, pagan lifestyles, and yet uh, God uses them to bring about a great deliverance, and, In chapter 8, I find what I call a grand drama. In many ways, it encapsulates the entire book and I believe points us to the greater drama in all of redemptive history in the theme that goes throughout Scripture of God's people threatened by certain judgment and God bringing about a surprising and bold deliverance by way of an advocate. Let us read Esther chapter 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king, She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, "'If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes.'" Let an order be written to revoke the letter devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, And they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and a decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Father, we are reminded both of dreadful things and glorious things in this passage. We pray that you would teach us, instruct our hearts, that we might find in these things the riches of God revealed in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I recently read a John Grisham novel. In fact, uh, one of the few nonfiction books that he's written, a, a book called The Innocent Man. It's primarily the story, the true story of Ron Williamson and a few others. Ron, who was unjustly convicted of a crime, a crime of violating a woman and taking her life in the small town of Ada, Oklahoma, in the early 1980s. Ron had been a hometown baseball hero who almost made it into the big leagues. but Then Ron fell upon hard times. Unsuccessful in his baseball career, making poor decisions, getting into some trouble with the law, and descending into increasingly unhealthy emotional and mental instability. Well, when a young woman's life was brutally taken in her own home, the town of Ada seeks retribution, and in a spirit of, of zeal, and after an incompetent investigation, the police are desperate for a suspect and use dirty tactics and very weak evidence to, and even the false accusation of the actual killer himself, to pin this crime upon Ron and his friend Dennis Fritz. A determined prosecutor pushes the very flawed case through the courts, convinces a gullible jury to bring about a premature conviction on these two men. These men spend years on death row, and for Ron particularly, it only continued to increase his, uh, his mental instability, and coming to the brink of death on death row, he is... Becomes nearly insane. Ron and Dennis were falsely accused, poorly represented by their defense attorneys, suffered the ignorance of the juries, and faced certain destruction on death row in Oklahoma. In those years, the state of Oklahoma had to stay against execution for a few years to investigate their legitimacy. But then, in a wave, uh, in a surge of, of re-enactment, they began to ratchet it up. And Ron was on the fast track towards execution with little hope, save only his God-fearing sisters who prayed for him daily. Well, on the 11th hour, just weeks before his execution, an appeal was made on Ron's behalf that was upheld by the courts. As lawyers from the Innocence Project read and identified the injustices of the case, and also drew upon DNA testing that would eventually exonerate Ron and Dennis and warrant a new trial. This new technology of DNA testing would not only exonerate them, but set them free, and even they began to identify how deeply flawed was the process that was based upon weak evidence, and eventually this case was appealed approved, and these men were set free. Like prisoners on death row, the Jewish people were desperate, facing certain destruction. Only an appeal from a strong and earnest advocate would turn the tide away from destruction towards deliverance. Friends, you and I have a strong and earnest advocate, who delivers us from the certain destruction that is to come. Paul writes in the book of Romans, chapter 15, that whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I believe that we have the story of Esther to remind us of at least three things. The absolute certainty of coming destruction. Our need for an advocate to secure our defense. And thirdly, our calling to advance the message of deliverance that comes only through Christ. Well, We see the hand of God clearly in the previous chapters as the Lord turns Haman's vindictiveness and vengeance upon Mordecai and the Jews on his own head. We saw last time the poetic justice of a sleepless night of the king, which is directed to a reward given to Mordecai for a deed that protected and preserved the king's life. And then in the last chapter, Esther's bold accusation against Haman results in this enemy of the Jews being impaled upon a 75 foot high stake that had been intended for Mordecai the Jew. Haman was dead. And yet, the threat for the Jews was not over. The decree that had been written by Haman had been sealed with the king's signet ring, and that edict still stood firm. Judgment Day, the 13th day of the 12th month was coming in which all of the Jews' enemies were free to attack and plunder them. The Jews had many enemies in the ancient world. Their obscure worship, their peculiar diet practices, their exclusive rites and rituals, their refusal to participate with the idolatry and immorality around them made them a prime target of enmity. The Jews were sent into exile by the Lord their God for dabbling with idolatry and the immorality of the pagans to punish them, to rid them, and to rid God's people of these profane practices, and scatter them among the Gentiles. God had delivered his people in perilous times, time and time again. And now, once again, they were threatened by the bloodlust and covetous greed of their surrounding neighbors. In John Grisham's story, he recounts the appalling behavior of those who would attack and accuse Ron and Dennis. Their jurors were quick to judge them even when evidence was lacking. Ron in particular suffered the abuse of the prison guards inside prison who taunted him daily, speaking lies to him to only provoke an emotional reaction which was descending deeper and deeper into mental instability. But perhaps most sadly of all was the reaction of Ron's uh, home church. The church where his family had attended for years, how they turned their back on Ron and his family, caving into the peer pressure of the community around them. Ron had been rejected by all, except only his sisters, a few friends, and lawyers who were zealous for justice. Lawyers who had empathy who sought to rescue those who were falsely accused and were facing destruction on death row. The judgments of men can be quite arbitrary. Vindictive and rooted in the worst of ignorance, in contrast, is the judgment of God, which is perfectly just and righteous. Indeed, this edict against the Jews was unjust, It was based upon the vindictiveness and evil intent of Haman, the Agagite, the descendant of the Amalekites, who were sworn enemies to the Jewish people. And yet this edict was upheld by justice. It was a decree written in the king's name. It was sealed by his signet ring. It was a law that could not be revoked. It was in the spirit of the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be changed. In a way, it instructs us about the decree of God, that there is a judgment day approaching, and it is based upon perfect justice and cannot be revoked. All humankind stand condemned as violators of God's holy and righteous will, This judgment is not based upon false accusation, and there are no innocent persons among us. All of us stand before the bar of God's justice, helpless on the day of judgment, as God delivers his just verdict. You and I deserve a punishment worse than death, than the confiscation of our property. God alone is just, who will thrust those out of his righteous and loving presence into eternal damnation and unquenchable fury, all unworthy sinners who stand before him without the righteousness of Christ. There will be no final appeals, no last-minute interventions. There will be no stay of execution. Rather, the verdict will be sealed to utter destruction for all who fall short of the glory of God. We live in a day and age where the judgment of God and his holy wrath are unpopular. People around us think it strange and even demented that we would suggest that a loving God is holy and appoints a day of judgment where he will pour out wrath upon sinners. Many note how increasingly in our day, at funerals, everybody is preached into heaven. Sadly, the church shies away from this truth, this very important truth that Jesus spoke of more than heaven, more than messages of salvation. The clear and present warning that hell is a very real place. And Jesus, who came not to judge at his first coming, will indeed return as the just judge of all the earth. Hell was not only reserved for Hitler and Stalin, but scores of good people who live godless lives apart from Christ. There is only one advocate who can deliver us from the coming wrath, And that is our great defense attorney, Jesus Christ. The Jews needed an advocate to secure their defense. We'll notice in verse 1 that when Esther finally offers full disclosure to her king that she is a Jew, when she identifies herself with her people and with Mordecai, her cousin, notice that her disclosure is rewarded. Commentators wonder, should not Esther have disclosed this sooner? Perhaps if she had not been instructed in a, a policy of obscurity and accommodation, had she been up front with who she was, perhaps this whole mess could have been prevented in the first place. But no, a crisis is formed, and the truth comes out. And Esther is rewarded, and Mordecai is given the king's signet ring, exalting him to the right hand of the king as his vizier. But in verse 3, Esther speaks with an appeal. Though Haman is out of the picture, his dreadful edict still stood firm. The text says, Esther falls before the feet of the king, weeps and pleads that he might avert the evil plan of the wicked Haman. Without regard for herself, she receives and depends upon the mercy of the king who extends to her the golden scepter signifying acceptance. And it's here that Esther makes her final appeal, standing before the king in a spirit of submission and respect it's noted that here, unlike other places where she would offer up maybe one or two courtly phrases of respect and honor, here she offers in verse 5 four of them. She prefaces her request with these words, "'If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if this thing seems right before the king, and if I am pleasing in his eyes.'" Though she is speaking on the behalf of her people, Esther seeks to please the king, to find favor in his sight, appealing to his wisdom and justice, and seeking to be pleasing in his eyes. I think Esther's appeal might be a model prayer for us. Do we offer the same submission and respect when we come to God with our various petitions and requests? Is it our desire to please Him, to be pleasing in His eyes, to find favor in His sight, to affirm His wisdom and justice, and to seek divine approval? We must avoid presuming upon God's grace when we come before Him. We must remove any notion that God somehow owes us, any ridiculous thinking that somehow we know better. Esther did not presume upon the king, a king who was arbitrary, impulsive, a king who was not known for rationality and justice, who could care less about the Jewish people, but only cared for his own welfare friends you and i plea before a great king who is just who is approachable who is merciful who does care about his people who ultimately seeks his glory and our good esther presents her request that the decree of haman be revoked and then she gets emotional and personal in her appeal Saying, how could I bear to see the calamity that will come upon my people? How could I bear to see the destruction that will come upon my own kinfolk? Esther lays it all out before the king. She essentially says, if my people die, I die. And though the king may not care a lick about the people, he has grown to care about his favorite bride and queen. Here Esther fully identifies with her own people. Though the king's initial response is not exactly encouraging, almost as if to say he's already given Esther the house of Haman, he goes on to fully grant her desire, authorizing her and Mordecai to write on behalf of the Jewish people. She is the favorite wife. She can have what she wishes to write what she pleases and seal it with the signet ring of the king. The appeal here is not to a king that is just, but a king who will hear the appeal of his bride. Esther is the only one who can stand in the gap. She is the only one who can give the ear of the king. She is the only one who can mediate on behalf of her people. And it's in this manner that Esther is, indeed, Christ-like. It was Jesus who identified with his people. It was Jesus alone who could go before a holy God and stand in the gap to mediate, to make an appeal on behalf. And the Father was pleased with the Son, the Son who perfectly fulfilled the edict all the righteous requirements of God's holy law. Though the people of God had failed, it was Jesus who satisfied his father's will and laid down his life, an atoning sacrifice for sins to deliver his people from the coming wrath at the cost of his own precious blood. King Ahasuerus did not revoke the first edict that judgment still stood firm. But he did authorize another to give the Jews a ready defense for that judgment day. Likewise, God's just judgment still stands. And yet a new edict is given. An edict not of justice and destruction, but an edict of grace and redemption for all who would take their defense in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believer, you and I stand accused. Accused by the devil, the adversary. And though he accuses us, we need not fear judgment day, but are exhorted to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to stand in his righteousness alone, to be washed and cleansed by the Savior's blood, that we may be accepted and not suffer destruction. Ron Williamson and Dennis Fritz were exonerated by DNA testing as it was found that the, the DNA in the body fluids found at the scene of the crime did not match their own. They were clean and unspotted as far as that crime was concerned. Our DNA is all over our guilty crimes. And yet, all of our charges have been cleared. Friend, in Christ, you have a new DNA. You are a new creature in Christ. The old has gone. The new has come. The old man has been crucified and punished, and the new man lives free and accepted before our righteous God. There's another element to this drama that I can't help but try to tease out a little bit. I want to point out that there are three actors here. There is the authority of the king... The appeal of Queen Esther and the action taken by Mordecai to carry out this royal decree, sending the message of deliverance out by couriers. Now, we need to be careful not to make too much of this. But one of the things they teach you in preaching class is to always ask the question, why is this in the Bible? What is God trying to communicate to his people through this text? I speculate a little bit that perhaps God provides us a word picture that somehow alludes to the triune nature of the Godhead, of the great king who issues his decree, of that second member who makes an appeal on our behalf, and a third member who is empowered to go out and to apply that message of deliverance. In some sense, this historical drama has three actors who are play acting. And though very flawed and imperfect, we have her, a king who is arbitrary, who is unjust and vindictive. We have in Queen Esther a very flawed advocate. And yet she does demonstrate something that is Christ-like by her submission, her humility by making an earnest plea and willingness to sacrifice herself. And even Mordecai by his own modesty, not seeking his own glory, but to carry out the will of the king and the queen to equip his people for readiness on the day of judgment. Yes, I believe there is something here that helps us understand the divine drama of redemption for God's people. Another issue that we should tackle before we leave this text is the, uh, the, the disturbance of, of some who uh, point out the fact that not only were the Jews given the right to defend themselves, but even were given the privilege to go on the offense, to attack and plunder their enemies, women and children even. And there is perhaps an illusion here to the prior conquest of the Canaanites under Joshua, the Israelite people who were used by God to wreak his just vengeance upon the wicked and the evildoers. Even the allusion and the reference in our text to Haman the Agagite, who was the descendant of King Agag, the king that King Saul failed to execute, that Samuel did in this place a reminder of the vindictiveness between this ancient people who had unjustly attacked the Hebrews as they came out of Egypt. This is a scary foreshadowing, a foreshadowing of the judgment of God upon all those who failed to identify with God's people, who failed to receive the sign and seal of God's grace that is revealed in Christ and has been given to the church. I'm grateful that we live on this side of the cross. Holy war is not a part of God's plan and purposes in this age. We're not called to take life. We're called to spread the message of life. We are called to, in this age of grace, to not seek the destruction of unbelievers, rather communicate them the message of deliverance that has been secured for us in Christ Jesus. as to this last message that we turn in closing, when we understand we have a calling to advance the message of deliverance. In verses 9 and following, Mordecai wastes no time by summoning the scribes to write and to make copies of and even translate this message and send it to the officials. Throughout all the 127 provinces of the empire, from India to Ethiopia, he wrote in the name of the king. He sealed it with the king's signet ring and sent the letter by couriers upon swift horses. Esther and Mordecai were motivated to equip their people to be ready in a few months' time to take their stand, to have a ready defense against the assault that was coming. Are we motivated? Are we motivated to get the message across to a people who are unprepared for the coming destruction? Are we as diligent in spreading this word of using every means possible to communicate that judgment is coming, that there is imminent danger and there's only one hope, only one place of refuge and deliverance? finding defense in the perfect work of Christ to shield people from the coming wrath. Friend, you and I are couriers. We are agents of redemption, guided by the Holy Spirit to warn people to flee from the coming wrath, to spread the good news of life, of finding refuge in the work of Christ. Sadly, Esther and Mordecai waited until a crisis was upon them before they made it clear and identified with their own people. And I want to point point out that in our passage, in fact, in the whole book, without any mention of God, without any credit directed towards God to praise Him, even these people in our text do not rejoice and praise God at the good news of deliverance. They don't worship God, they're not crediting God who had delivered them. Again and again and again, these are the people who have been delivered out of bondage in Egypt, who have been led into the land of Canaan, whom God raised up, Judges and King David and other deliverers to save their people from destruction. Sadly, the Jews of this day forgot their own gospel. Friend, let us not forget. Let us not neglect what a great salvation we have in Jesus Christ. Because knowledge of that salvation is what drives and fuels our efforts to get this message out. To be joyful messengers, boldly declaring the good news, to be the sweet-smelling aroma of Christ to those who are perishing. Ron Williamson's life ended in 1996 due to health complications but his life was extended as it would have ended sooner in a manner of disgrace had he not been blessed with the advocacy of the lawyers of the Innocence Project. These faithful attorneys labor to deliver hundreds of convicted, falsely accused and convicted inmates living on death row identifying where trials have not followed due process, where shady and weak evidence has been used for conviction, or even using DNA testing to overturn unjust convictions. The Innocence Project is zealous to set captives free. Those who have been wrongly incarcerated, facing certain death. May we learn from their zeal to help deliver captives who are in bondage to sin, facing certain destruction, offering them the soul-saving message of Jesus Christ. Our passage ends with a final image of Mordecai. We may recall earlier, in response to the first decree of the king at the instigation of Haman, Mordecai was in sackcloth, weeping. But here, upon the delivering of the second edict, Mordecai is robed in splendor with all the Jews of Susa rejoicing. In fact, many of the non-Jews declare themselves Jews out of fear and reverence of their God. Mordecai, perhaps, is an image reminding us that the Lord Jesus at his first coming came in weakness, in mourning, in humility, And yet the same Lord Jesus Christ will come again a second time in great glory and splendor and majesty. Friend, that day is coming. The day that the fear of the Lord and the judgment will be revealed. Friends, you and I who live in exile, let us live to exalt our great God, to lift high the cross, that he may indeed draw all Men and women unto himself. Let's pray. A great and amazing God, you who are just in all of your judgments, righteous in all of your ways, we are grateful for your great grace, your rich mercy that delivers us from the coming wrath. May we be a people who exalt and lift high at the cross of Christ, and may you indeed draw others unto himself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.